Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Today, because I do a political roundtable called The Wheelhouse in the morning, and then I was going to do this thing at night, we decided we'd put a rerun on the air. And we didn't really think about it too much, except that we knew that the Eagles were coming on Saturday night to Hartford. And so we put on this show we did a long time ago about how people get in fights about the Eagles. And it actually, it actually begins with a guy telling a story about how he almost got into a fist fight in a bar because someone overheard him talking negatively about the Eagles. So, I mean, if the Eagles, if the Eagles can trigger that kind of conflict, we're in deep trouble here. And the other story I want to tell you, it takes maybe an extra second or two, but so I used to be on WTIC where I was kind of a house liberal at an otherwise conservative radio station. And I had this tradition on election, the day after election day, I would have this um, special event that was directed entirely at people who had lost elections and therefore in, in an associative way, people who were partisans of whoever had lost the election. And by tradition, Bill Curry would come in and he would give a little talk, you know, <laughs> and we, I would have psychotherapists, uh, and things like that. So one year, I said to Bill, you know what we should do? We should get a Buddhist on, because if we had a Buddhist, you know, that would be a really interesting kind of perspective. So somehow or other, we talked Robert Thurman into joining the show by phone. Now, Robert Thurman, in addition to being Uma's dad, is really maybe the most prominent Buddhist philosopher slash scholar in America, and so we're thinking, this is going to be great because people who are in this, you know, veil of despond will hear from this Buddhist who will see things in a much more expansive and less dichotomous way, and it's going to be great. And so the time comes, and I, we, we get uh, Robert Thurman on the air, and I said, well, you know, tell us how you're thinking today about this election. And he goes, well, I certainly think those voting machines in Ohio were rigged, you know, and he... <laughs> He just turns out to be like the angriest Buddhist you've ever <laughs> seen in your life. Like, we, we couldn't get him calmed down, you know? And Bill Curry, who knows a lot about Buddhism, would still go, you know, uh, Professor Thurman, in terms of the sevenfold path, and you go, look, I think Curry won this thing, actually. I don't think, you know. <laughs> so that's how much political passion and divisiveness can, oh, well, it can overwhelm Buddhism, you know? I mean, that should give you kind of a sense of what we're up against. Fortunately, we have some people who are going to help you through this. I'm going to start over here, furthest away from me, is Brendan Kane, Associate Professor of History at UConn, and one of the leaders of the Humility and Conviction in Public Life project there. They described their mission as exploring this question, how can we balance our most deeply held convictions with humility and open-mindedness in order to repair public discourse? So as I was also thinking about this panel, I was thinking, I want somebody who really very specifically deals with the most personal human forms of discord. And initially, I thought maybe it would be a divorce mediator. But then when I started reading about divorce mediators, I thought, oh, no, it turns out there are psychologists who consult on this kinds of stuff. That's what I really want. And then when I looked around a little bit more, I found the person who's sitting in the middle there, uh, Wendy Habelow. Uh, Dr. Wendy Habelow is the owner uh, and clinical psychologist 
psychologist at, is it Beacon Behavioral Services, right? I have that right. And she is a member of the American Psychological Association. And this is what really sold me, the Connecticut Council for Non-Adversarial Divorce. Um, but also, I think you have some training in alternative dispute resolution and stuff like that. So I'm thinking, okay, we're good. And then when I was asking around, everybody told me uh, about this guy. Valeriano Ramos, uh, Jr., is director of, you were going to call him Val for the rest of the evening, uh, and director of strategic alliances and uh, equity officer for everyday democracy. Their specialty is creating spaces for citizens to have inclusive, respectful, and meaningful conversations that lead to collective action on any given issue. They've worked on policing, mental health, early childhood education, rural poverty, immigration, and the Eagles also. They, they, they got in the middle of a... Uh, that, was that, that one you really couldn't work out very well, but the rest of them you've been pretty successful. The, the Eagles maybe not so much. So I'm going to ask you all to tell me something, which is we're all feeling kind of crazy these days. I'm going to ask you all, starting with you, Brendan, how do you keep yourself from becoming overheated in supercharged times like this? I, I suppose there are really two things. I mean, I think like lots of people I have, um, I'm an obsessive runner, so I run and just as a way of diversion. And I actually think the work that I do, working with communities and working with students around campus, actually is a way to try to lower the temperature. So it's actually through the work of doing precisely what it is that we're speaking about tonight, about trying to talk meaningfully across difference. It's a grounding way to keep me from otherwise being the angry Buddhist in the room. Yeah. <laughs> okay. How about you, Wendy? How are you taking care of yourself first? Well, I think I have to make sure that I'm not obsessively watching the news mm. and flipping channel to channel to channel. Instead, I'm um, obsessively watching the Great British Baking Show on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. <laughs> You know, in my practice, I don't just do divorce um, mediation work. I see a variety of people. So that takes me out of that kind of role and more into what I really like to do as well, which is just to help individual people cope with things other than all this political upheaval. How about you, Val? Music for me. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I perform music. I play guitar. I've been doing it for many years. Music, I get lost in it, composition, performing. But also, music appeals to everybody, hopefully, mm. you know. And so it's a way to communicate with people regardless of who they are. Because mm. if they enjoy music, I do enjoy music too. Mm. It's a way to sort of get away from, mm. from that. So I was teaching uh, at Yale last, in the last spring semester. I was teaching in the poli-sci department. I was teaching a course about how political journalism either works or doesn't work in the 21st century. And one day... We had a guest show up in the class, and he stayed with us for the entire two hours. And his name was Jeb Bush. And it's he Yale. was... <laughs> exactly. Um, you just, like, leave your door open and a little bowl of milk or something, you know, and, at Yale, and presidential candidates will just show up. And, you know, don't feed them, though. They'll just keep coming back. But um, so here's this guy, and he's really, you know, still kind of clearly emotionally bruised from these debates, from this campaign that he went through where he was belittled and bullied on stage by the guy who ultimately won everything. And he was sort of off the record for this class. So I'm not going to say too much of what he said, but I think, it's, I think it's okay to say that one of the things that he thought a lot about was, should he have been more like that? Should he have shown uh, Donald Trump, that he could do the same thing, that he could, he could fight that way. And it's an interesting question, too, like whether that's a good strategy or not. And also, it made me think, what we don't give out mostly are prizes for civility. You know, you just mm -hmm. don't get 
you know, I mean, even Miss Congeniality, I don't even know if they have that in Miss America anymore, but, I, you know, congeniality isn't something that we reward or honor most of the time. And I don't know, you were nodding as I was saying, he was thinking, should I have been tougher? Should I have been meaner? I don't know, what would you have told him? <laughs> yes, he should have been, I suppose. <laughs> um, well, no, I mean, I, and I do actually think that's at least a rational position to take because yeah. what you're thinking about is you're thinking about your audience and you're thinking about the particular circumstances in which you're acting and the particular circumstances in which he was acting and the particular audience to which he was appealing. That seemingly would have, would have worked. Whereas going to the second point about we don't give out any, I mean, we might give out accolades, but we don't give out anything really meaningful for civility. I mean, I think in many ways, by the time you get to be an adult and, you know, you're working with a therapist, you're working with a uh, conflict resolution professional, at that point, we're sort of backfilling our ability to do this kind of work. I mean, I think it's absolutely crucial for us, one, to be teaching some of those skills, giving those experiences, but then I think also having some alteration to our, you know, the metrics for merit and so on and so forth, however those look at the particular stage that we're at or whatever authority that we need to answer to, to actually reflect that. So in, in my particular position, it would be if you're a faculty member to research one university, if you spend some of your time doing civility work or civic engagement in some kind of meaningful way that involves teaching across difference, working with people to have those skills, is that not a form of knowledge production, and especially for a land-grant state university? And therefore, if you alter some of the metrics, well, then people respond. The peculiar, curious phenomenon of a two-party electoral contest creates certain dynamics that simply don't exist elsewhere. And Do they or don't they? So, so one of the things that I hear a lot, I mean, lately I have been both on social media and on my radio show trying to pe- preach a little bit of a gospel of trying to see some of the deficits on your side that other people from the other side might be noticing, some inconsistencies. Let's own some of our own failures before we point to the other side's failures. Let's make civility and consensus more of a goal. And mostly what I hear from people on either side is, oh, I already do. It's them. They are the ones who are not doing it. I already do that. We already do that. Anybody can see it's them. They are consistently power-grabbing, self-aggrandizing jerks. And, you know, that's one of the things that we deal in community dialogues, too. One of the things that you mentioned, incentives. Research shows that people really want to be heard. They want to be taken seriously and respected. When they feel that first moment that they're being heard, their guard goes down. That doesn't mean that they're going to stop believing that, you know, the moon is, is green or whatever. They're, they're at least going to put aside that and say, wow, I didn't expect that. If you're talking to your father or grandfather about politics and you know that they're going to, you know, scream at you, just listen to them and say, hey, I want, I want to hear more about what you think about this. And just listen to them, you know, just listen and spend time engaging with them. Which is one of the reasons social media is one of the worst places Uh to do this. Because no one listens. No one listens. Listen, I'm busy typing. I can't listen. I can't listen to what you're saying. So for those of you listening at home, we're having this conversation probably a a week or two before you're hearing it. So we're in the thick uh, of the Brett Kavanaugh, uh, Christine Blasey Ford situation. One thing that I'm hearing from women is we've been brought up 
generationally to be the peacemakers, the people who put the pin back in the grenade, the polite ones, the civil ones. That's what we've been taught all of our lives. And it has resulted in a substantial amount of victimization and advantage taking by the other side. So if you're telling me right now, Colin McEnroe, that I have to be more civil, I've been told that by my mother, and she was told that by her mother, and it really has set up a, a chain of results that I'm not particularly happy with. All right, I'm going to hand off the chromosomal baton to you. <laughs> okay, that, that's a pretty heavy responsibility. Yeah. So the first thing I'm struck with is your use of the word civil. Mm. Civil doesn't mean passive. Civil doesn't mean subservient. Mm. It just means whatever the opposite. It just doesn't mean rude. You know, so I think women historically haven't been taught to be civil. They've been told you need to be passive and permissive and subservient. And I think what's happened is, as is often the case, when you're feeling very strongly one way and you decide you're going to have another reaction, the pendulum swings way the other way to try to bring a sense of balance where really what needs to happen is women and people can still be civil without being passive or feeling like they're being a doormat. What gets activated when people finally get angry enough to say, I'm not doing this anymore, is sort of a part of the brain that's like fight or flight gets Mm. really activated and they move right into fight mode because that's what they feel they need to do. I'm going to have you put your historian hat on over there because another thing that I hear a lot is you want conciliation, you want somebody to be conciliatory, you want me to be conciliatory, you want me to be civil and accommodating and, and aware of the needs of the other side. You know who did that? Neville Chamberlain. He was really conciliatory. Um, and it's an interesting point that, you know, particularly in the political dynamic, one day you're being conciliatory with somebody who's more or less an equal who maybe is trying to get to the same place as you. But another day you might be dealing with someone who's utterly ruthless. So I don't know. Can you parse that a little bit for us? I, civility is a deeply, deeply problematic term. You know, I work on a grant that's interested in these kinds of questions, like how do you practice meaningful discourse? And we very, very clearly and specifically decided to avoid the word civility. One, because it has this kind of you know, broad semantic range, but also it is this code word for authority. So quite often those who are on the, the sort of bad end of asymmetry of power decide, like, well, you know what, actually, if I'm going to resist and you're going to call that being incivil, well, then incivility is, is meaningless to me as is, you know, civility. So, yeah, I mean, I do think having some accountability not only for your own actions, but trying to have the other person have accountability for the actions that they are. How do you do um, that? The process of dialogue is one which is not simply about putting yourself into someone else's shoes, but is actually trying to, and I think, you know, trying to get below people's, um, or sort of get behind people's initial expression and try to get them to own the statement that they're making, but in a way that is not combative. And obviously this is somewhat difficult, but the idea of, well, your accountability to the potentially shared values that are around this table. And that shared table can be, you know, to be kind of historical about it, you know, a kind of post-Westphalian European system. It could be extended family. Like, there is a reason why we are at this negotiating table or this turkey day table, because Thanksgiving itself is a controversial term. Um, (laughs) And so accountability, so, you know, I think accountability that draws upon the values and the values that reflect the reason why you're around that space, 
Yeah, that's a response. Oh, and I agree with that. The idea of values is very important, you know, and, and in dialogue work that we do with communities, we try not to put the issue, address the issue right head on, but talk about what are the values that we all share as human beings in communities. We want mm -hmm. safety, we want opportunity, right? We want respect, accountability, inclusion, participation. We, we don't want to be marginalized. And, and I think we all agree with that, and that's always a very important first step in lowering the guard of people so that they say, well, we do have some things in common. So it sets already the stage for some continuous process of ongoing engagement and dialogue. I know of one family where they really have had some uh, terrible, terribly contentious conversations about the current political situation. And there was a point where an older member of the family referred to the, a younger member of the family as a snowflake. So we know what that means. You know, a snowflake is somebody who's, it's usually a conservative directing that taunt at a liberal. Uh, it's somebody who thinks that he or she is incredibly special and here his or her sensibilities need to be honored. And the implication also is that that person will very easily melt uh, if those conditions uh, are not met. And it does seem, I don't know if you do this in, in mediation or anything like that, but it does seem like certain terms probably need to be taken off the table pretty quickly. I'm very, very observant and really try to set a tone in my office when I'm working with separating and divorced people about what, in my opinion, you know, constitutes appropriate language. And um, I'm pretty, it's not like regular psychotherapy. I'm pretty direct when someone is using a term that everybody knows is rude or insulting, or it doesn't occur to me that it is until I see the other person's face, mm -hmm. and I can tell that they feel insulted. Mm -hmm. So I spend a lot of time trying to instruct people in how to get your point across without using that type of inflammatory language. Body language and nonverbals also can be incredibly respectful or disrespectful. Sort of respectful interactions include, you know, turning your body towards the person speaking or to whom you're directing, eye contact, as opposed to, I have people who don't want to talk to each other, they're sitting really in the opposite direction, no eye contact, even worse, smirking, making faces, eye rolling. So, there's so much that goes into communication when people are just very negatively stimulated and very passionate about something. All right, we're live from Watkinson School. We're going to take a break right now, and then we're going to come back. Civility, civility, I know you'll impress. Every guest will be stunned by how far you have come. Every heart will be Hi, uh, let me tell you what you're listening to right now. This is a recording of a conversation that took place on stage at Watkinson School uh, on October 3rd. We're talking about the departure of civility from public discourse with experts who are good at restoring civility. So let's get back to that talk. Okay, so one of the experiences that I had as an undergraduate in college is that uh, the university that I attended, which is the same one that I was teaching at recently, had invited a man named William Shockley to come and speak. William Shockley was this brilliant Nobel Prize winning physicist who is in some way or was in some way responsible for 
everything from transistors to semiconductors to, I mean, you know, the stuff that you're, like this that you're carrying around is a little bit of William Shockley's legacy to this day, um, what modern computers are. The problem was that he didn't confine his opinions to physics. Uh, and so he had a lot of opinions about other stuff. And he was one of these guys who basically did believe that white people are smarter and better and kind of meant to run everything. And people of color genetically lack certain things that they would need in order to compete on an even field with white people and all this stuff. And so some group at Yale invited him in to talk and the university went nuts. And he got disinvited and then there was another conversation and then he was invited. And as part of this process and around the same time, a few years beforehand. George Wallace had also been invited to speak. You know, the great segregationist had been invited to speak on the Yale campus. So they came out ultimately with a report. C. Van Woodward, the historian, chaired this commission. And they came out with a report saying, basically, this is a university, and it's, if it's, it's big enough to absorb even fairly toxic arguments, and there's just no way that we can, to our own profit or good, restrict the playing field. We have to be able to talk things out. This is something that every college campus is struggling with right now. So UConn, for example, this year, or last year, I guess, had a speaker on campus whose, I believe the title of the speech was, It's Okay to Be White. And this is obviously a speaker who was prepared to address the centuries of oppression that white people have had to deal with and to try to find some way to lift their tremendous burden and make them feel a little bit better about themselves. And, and as you can probably tell people, this kind of all went haywire. There was somebody who ran up and tried to grab the speaker's notes away. Fights broke out. This is like everything that the Humility and Conviction Project wants to avoid. I mean, it seems to me the idea that you have two sides is is so artificial. I mean, the kind of binary thinking shows up at certain points, but it doesn't in other points, and so I think it's quite interesting trying to isolate when it does show up and uh, try to sort it out. And I had sort of the great privilege to be able to speak in front of the Board of Trustees and our, and our university president about civil discourse and dialogue last year, and there were a couple questions posed to me about, well, you know, you bring both sides together, to which I responded, and so what exactly are these two sides, right? I mean, are they Democrats or Republicans? What is it? Is it is it left right? How do you define that? Does that mean that you don't have people who might be kind of institutionally independent or take different positions? And I think one of the things we have to understand as a uh, educational institution is that not only are there many more than two sides. I mean, often there really aren't sides. There are people trying to figure things out. We have to take it quite seriously. Our charge to help people. And I think this idea of like, we are going to educate them, like you are going to think like me, like God help you if you think like me. The idea <laughs> is to try to help people realize, you know, their own intellectual and personal growth. And so there often aren't sides. And thus, when you get to something like that particular event, uh, which was scandalous, according to some. I mean, in a way, it seemed to me, it's like, well, in part, that's what a college campus is supposed to be. I mean, obviously, it was wildly offensive and racist and people felt put out across the political continuum. But my particular take, and I think many people in the humility and conviction, you know, are not that we want to see that kind of erased. What I'd rather see is a kind of preventive medicine metaphor, which is to say, you are constantly doing this work where you are encountering people's positions and you are trying to take public accountability for your own positions and therefore you know you're always going to have these little sort of spikes of 
excitement. Mm-hmm. I mean, in part because that's actually part of the dynamic of a college campus. There are going to be people there testing out their provocateur status or things are going to spiral out of control in ways that you don't know. But if you have no experience in how to deal with that, then it does become madness. So, yeah, I don't necessarily have a problem with controversial speakers, but I do think it's irresponsible to bring people in or block people from coming in if you don't actually give people and the community some of the tools to understand where that fits within the broader kind of value arc. So I was brought up in the kind of family where there were not arguments for three or four years at a stretch, and then there'd be an argument that was really terrible, you know, and that would spiral out of control. And I learned not to want to have arguments. There are other families where people kind of argue every day and they raise their voices and it somehow or other doesn't seem to acquire the same kind of meaning to it. But I think there's sort of a fear, a generalized fear, Val, that if things spiral out of control, we'll never get them back on an even keel. You know, I think there's a fear in this country right now that after 2016, we'll never have the kind of election we used to have. It's always going to be like this. There are going to be people at debates screaming about the size of their hands and their other body parts and stalking the other candidate around the stage on debates, and it's just going to be horrible. But it seems to me, you deal with a lot of situations where things have spiraled out of control, and apparently you are sometimes able to get the toothpaste back into the tube. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. It really has to do with understanding that there's different ways to have conversations on contentious issues. There are different what we call uh, engagement strings or, or uh, dialogue and deliberation models. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there are some models that engage individuals, like the World Cafe, for example, kitchen table conversations. They're designed for small groups of people mm-hmm. uh, because it's more manageable and also they tend to be more exploratory about understanding people's thinking and motivations and experiences. And then there are other dialogues that are more around transforming conflict, mm-hmm. conflict transformation. And that those are a little bit more intense. They're about really looking about empathy, building connection, relationships. And then there are the decision-making models of dialogue. Uh, and then finally, the, coll- the collective action model, which is what we do at Every Democracy. The reason I'm saying this mm. is that there's no one solution or mm. one way to address an issue or talking to people. There have to be the right kind of model and the right kind of approach and the right kind of facilitation for But let's for say it. that you go into a situation, which I'm sure you have gone into, where conflict has become physical at times. There's been pushing, shoving, fighting in the streets, things like that. I would assume one thing you would want to do is get things up to a place where that can't happen anymore. But, but how do you do that? Once people have already hit each other a few times, I, I feel like they start to get used to that as a particular way of expressing their anger. So how do you get back from that? we're humans and we can't get rid of that sort of reptilian part of our brain that does the fight or flight. And I think when people are very, very frightened, the brain activity tells them they need to fight. But emotion stays with us forever. We go in and out of feelings. So I think that's one of the reasons, you know, people, like you were saying, things flare up and then they calm down. It's sort of a a kind of Buddhist way, which I think Buddhism and psychology kind of dovetail in a lot of ways. So people don't typically stay angry at this level forever. Mm. It's just not sort of physiologically possible to keep that level of arousal going. Once this has happened, you know, with intervention or they can decide on themselves, then you can kind of intervene. Mm -hmm. 
And Val, did you want to say something about that too? About yeah, like how, uh, you, to me, violence, physical violence, means something else has happened. Well, how do you get that well, back? One thing we do is when we go to a community that, for example, had a situation like what happened in the Bronx, sub Bronx, in 2005, the shooting of an unarmed black man, is to give the community a chance to go get over that initial emotional tension. So we talk about community readiness for engaging in conversation. We do not go to a community and, and bring the coalition together, different people, before they're ready to do that. They need to let go of a lot of emotion, a lot of anger, frustration, distrust. That's not to say they're not going to come into the meeting, the, the initial dialogues, tense and nervous, but at least they have lowered the decibel level of, of emotion. So we always think in those terms to, to give people a chance to uh, sort of uh, let go of the steam and then be able to have a conversation after that. We have a little bit of what I sometimes call the narcissism of the moment, which is this idea that we are living through the most tumultuous time ever. This right now, there has never been anything as bad as this. And so whatever remedies worked in the past, they might not work now. Well, yeah, and I think the other side of that too is not only this is, this is the worst time, but it's also the best time. History has been marching towards this point, right? We are the perfection. So that's, that's the other side of that. And I think just sort of that awareness, I mean, just simply that awareness is you know, it's not a bad thing. And we could simply go back to this. We were saying, you were saying earlier, the late 60s, early 70s. And uh, I think in many ways we're, we're in a more civil crudity and civility. I mean, that's a, that's a sort of interesting Venn diagram, but they, those are not coterminous units. But then if you just move back Further, 19th century, we have civil war. I'm actually an historian of 16th and 17th century Ireland and England, where if you had, you had problems, you'd get yourself a massacre. So, <laughs> you know, kind of keep the stuff in some, some kind of perspective. And you know, this notion that there's no moving back, I think, is pretty easily demonstrably false. And I don't know. I think there's, I mean, I'm not the one who would be able to speak best about this, but it seems to me that there's a certain psychological comfort in feeling the kind of incredible world historical importance of your moment. And maybe that's not a bad thing, but I think it also has these potentially damaging effects. It kind of raises the stakes for everything. Underlying narcissism is a, is a vast sense of insecurity. While it may on the surface feel comforting, to be like, okay, this is the, we're, we're living in the best of all possible worlds. Underneath it is the, the insecurity, like, are we? Are we? Is this going to, you know, is this going to get worse? And then I think what's going on now with the, this is the worst of times, it's sort of a weird reverse narcissism, like, it's still all about us, but in a bad way, you know? Like, it's got to be one or it's got to be the other. I think we go, all of us individually and collectively, go through periods of time where we're not really good at seeing the shades of gray. It goes back to your point before about the simple versus the more complicated conversation. All right, we got one more segment to go on this show. Right now, let's take a break, but we're live with this great audience at Watkinson School. So just suck up, suck up and be
Today's show was politely produced by me, Kyone Wolf, Colin McEnroe, and our friends at Event Resources. Amanda Fish gets into arguments with crabs. The part of Bill Curry was played by Oscar the Grouch. On tomorrow's show, the death and resurrection of opera. And now, back to Colin. All right, so Jenny uh, has got the microphone. She's a runner. She wants you to beckon to her from a long distance. She's got her Fitbit on. This is all, it all adds up to something. Hi, thank you. So it seems like in society today, there are certain segments of the population whose views are incompatible with the life, liberty, and property of other groups of the population. And they might not be big, but they're certainly very loud about it. If you look at the Unite the Right rally and whatnot, and they've definitely been emboldened by, I guess, the current political atmosphere. You can have a dialogue with them on university campuses and everything, but how do you share the, the wheel of the ship of state with them? How do you tolerate intolerance on a policymaking level? This is a really good question. Okay, so there's this term in political science called the Overton Window. And so the Overton Window describes, within the world of political science, the notion of what's an acceptable group of things to talk about and what things do not really belong anywhere within the field of a civilized political discourse. For example, I would place outside the Overton Window Alex Jones's suggestion that the Newtown shootings didn't really happen. That doesn't, that's not worth having a debate about. On the other hand, it is a thing that thousands, I don't know how many thousands, but many thousands of people believe. Many, many thousands of people in America believe that 9-11 happened in a very different way from the sort of quote-unquote acceptant government account of it. They believe different variations and flavors of this. I mean, ordinarily, I would say that's a wacky conspiracy theory that doesn't belong within the world of civilized discourse, except that, you know, if 10, 20, 30 percent of the public believes some version of it, then we have maybe some kind of obligation to discuss it, either debunk it or figure out what's going on. And I also do think that social media has has increased this problem because the people who believe that, you know, the third building at the World Trade Center blew up because there were explosives in it, they can all find each other now. They used to, like, live alone in French Lick, Indiana, and there was, like, nobody to talk to about this. Facebook is really good at helping people find each other. So then they kind of coalesce into these thought groups, and we have to deal with them. But I don't know that we've made up... Like, you're good at sort of figuring out boundaries. (laughs) I don't think there are boundaries in this other world. I think that the veil of anonymity in social media has has is one of the factors in my mind that has led to just having no boundaries whatsoever. People are free to say almost anything. Very rarely will you get kicked off of social media for something you say. There's a to me sort of a semblance of a wild wild west lawlessness, you know, do whatever you can do until you get caught by the sheriff or Facebook or whatever it is. Boundary work is something I do in my office every single day. So I can only chip away at it like one person or one couple at a time. But on a large macro level, I don't, I'm not sure. I want to also, Val, first of all, in the situations that you, community situations that you're mediating, I wonder, are there things that you say, look, nobody's going to say this thing? Or do you say, 
everybody's just going to say everything that they have to say, and then we'll start sweeping away the chaff and keeping the wheat. I mean, how do you handle that? The facilitators that we bring to communities are very trained. We spend three days with facilitators. And one of the things that they do, that they're trained to do, is when they start a dialogue circle, is the ground rules. Mm. And it's setting the context for the kind of conduct that will be acceptable. So no interruption of the other person, mm -hmm. uh, being respectful of the other person, not yelling, uh, waiting your term, and, and being following the, the, the lead of the facilitator. So those are some of the ground rules. And I think it creates a safe space where people feel that if they're talking, somebody's not just going to jump and interrupt them and start cursing them. Mm -hmm. So they are, in, that, in their dialogue work, there is that context. Because we need to have that. Mm -hmm. With the issues that we're dealing with in these communities that we go to support, these are issues that really they want to resolve in some way. Yeah. And the way that they're going to resolve it is not if in that dialogue they do the same thing they're doing outside of it. All right, so Brendan, one of the differences between that and what he's asking about is that people don't have that kind of resolve and there are people who are ready just to burn the whole system down and start all over again. There are people whose uh, goal is to sow as much discourse and bitterness as they possibly can. One of the things that you've talked about repeatedly is this notion of accountability. Mm. You know? And so he's talking about Charlottesville. Um, you know, at a certain point, Charlottesville got so bad that one of these people Hit, hit a bunch of people with a car, killed a person. You know, there were other acts of violence. And, and at that point, I do think the question of accountability comes up. You know, yeah, you guys have the right to express whatever you want to express, but then how do we talk about the things that happened after that? How do we deal with these people on a policy level? And it seems to me that there are a couple of ways to come at this. I mean, one is the kind of pipeline question. Like, how is it that we allow people like that to get into positions of authority. When it's clear that even as you quite rightly point out, this might be a minority position, it might be a relatively sizable minority, but nevertheless it's a minority position. So how is it that we've managed to allow these people to get in? And therefore it is the responsibility of all of us if that violates the kind of national table rules. Well, we, we actually are in this, I mean, thinking about like historical position. Um, we're actually in a quite good position historically to, to have in terms of the agents that we have to make some change. So that's one thing. Secondly, once they actually are in positions of authority, like that's a really, that's a really, really interesting question. And I mean, if I had anything decent to say about this, we would probably be living in a different world um, because a lot smarter and better connected people than, than me uh, are in these positions. And it seems that one of the things actually that is happening, uh, as I understand, is a lot of the... And I think this is something of an aspect of the evolution or development of our political system is that a lot of things that were, that were holdovers of kind of gentlemen's agreements of how things are done have been violated by people who will not agree to those. And therefore, they are now actually being sort of codified, right? Okay, oh, wait, hold on a second. This is actually how we're going to do this stuff. So that's, that's actually one way to do that. It's quite rare, I think, that anybody, that we, we actually encounter anybody who really wants to tear it down, mm. right? For the most part, people actually want to use the rhetoric of tearing something down as a way to put themselves in a position where they can control the levers of the thing, right? Because it's the thing that provides you some sort of authority. And so, right, you know, we're going to drain the swamp or we're going to do whatever it is that we happen to do. It's like, ha ha, hey, guess what? Now I am the swamp. So, yeah, hands up. 
One of the things that I think is missing or we don't have very many good examples of is people actually changing their minds. You know, people starting out very, very committed to, to one point of view and then actually going through some process to come out on the other side. And the book now that I'd recommend is one called, um, I think it's Rising Out of Hatred, which is that he's like David Duke's godson and, you know, his dad was a, in the, the clan. And he went to college, but he had started like some section of Stormfront geared towards uniting white children across the globe. And, you know, he started out, he was like raised in this situation. And then he goes to um, college in, in Florida and he has a friend who is an immigrant. He came over to this country from Peru. He has experience um, participating in Sabbath with uh, Jewish friends of his, and he just cannot actually resolve that. You know, he goes through this process of, you know, over several years of really disengaging from that and then actually being um, more of a spokesperson for more tolerance. So I think if you can have a situation where someone who has really got this deeply ingrained in them and someone like him can change, there is hope. She's raising a really interesting question, but the, it, well, you just go ahead. I know in my work, and I bet in Val's work too, I can't speak f- for sort of the example you gave, we actually do see people changing their minds and changing their positions. That's how we, you know, through the work we do, we get people to agreements and consensus. And I would imagine Val and I have a lot of similar processes for how you get people to consensus. I know for me, it's one of the reasons I can still do what is often difficult work because people do have the ability to change. And I think it's also important, like you said, to keep hopeful and not have that reverse narcissism thing where it's like, this is the absolute worst of times. I absolutely agree with you, Wendy. I think one of the things that we do in our work is expose people to each other. And there's a lot of research out there that shows, and and social psychologists have written about this, as as I know you know, um, that the more contact you have with people who are different from you, the more you begin to empathize, connect with, trust. It takes time. That's called social priming, I think that's the term that they call. And the same thing with people of different ethnicities and race. The more you get to know them, the more you realize they're human, just like you. They're you know, they're different facially in the texture of their hair or the color of the skin, but deep down underneath they're human beings. So it's about really putting people in that situation where they can actually talk to each other first as human beings, and then from that point of, point of view, and there have been some really great documentaries that I've seen that put two people with very different opinions in one room talking for five minutes about baseball or something that they may have in common. And they don't know that they are complete opposites in politics. And then they put them with a question to talk about a political issue, and it's amazing. They don't necessarily agree, but their level of respect is there. It begins to, it begins to come out. I don't know if you've seen some of that. There's some programs on television that have shown that. You have to take people at the moment where they can be related to others as humans, the humanity side of it. I mean, it's interesting, though, because it assumes, and I mean, I think kind of rightly so, or at least from my position, that there's a particular value along that continuum, which is 
a good one and the one that is bad. So the way in which the question started out about changing minds, there's no genre of people changing their minds. Like I was pretty tolerant and sort of universalist and you know, I became a racist and this is how <laughs> this this is how that happened. Do you know what I mean? It's it sort of already assumes that there's a definition of the of the common good or the common wheel, and I think it's one that we you know we certainly share, which is one which is tolerance actually is a value as opposed to a strategy and that the changing of minds is, you know is a good thing because it's going to move people in that direction but you know I one I think the changing of minds at least for us is, is is just like not a thing that we do in terms of the dialogic work because it already assumes then it's a debate in disguise. Then it's, it's something of a non-starter at that point. There's, in fact, that was in the Amanda Ripley article that we read. There's even a name for it. It's called like contact theory or something yeah. like that. I went out for a drink with two friends of mine about a month ago, who are, one of whom is you know, pretty diehard Republican, and the other one is kind of activist uh, on the left. Uh, and I wasn't even really thinking about that, because there were like other things that we all had in common. I wasn't really thinking about any of it. I just wanted somebody to buy me a Manhattan. So anyway, we... Uh, <laughs> And suddenly, I don't know how it got onto reproductive rights, but, you know, I mean, one, the Republican guy said, you know, you just have to understand. And by the way, this is important in terms of complicating the narrative on the Brett Kavanaugh stuff, because what's underneath the, I want Brett Kavanaugh, the same way, I want the House, is is this same thing. He said, you just have to understand that to me, abortion is like taking a human life. It is taking a human life for me. That's what it means to me, and that's why I can't go where you are. And then the other guys talked about, well, you know, but it's women who ultimately have to, you know, live with the consequences of that decision. Women need to have control over their own bodies. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, I could have just bought my own Manhattan, but because I thought it was going to be really bad. But we just all walked out of the bar at the end, and it was fine. And I was walking one of the guys back to his car, and I said, that was okay, right? And he said, yeah, it was okay. And maybe changing your mind isn't the thing so much as realizing you can have that conversation. The world doesn't crack open, and then you can go back to talking about music or baseball or whatever. You know? And I think that's a good point, uh, Colin. I think it's in, in the dialogue work we do, it's not about changing people's mind, but trying to find common ground. Mm-hmm. Where is the space? Yeah. Because you, you can have a different opinion from me, but is there a way that we can work together? And if it's about community problem solving, the community needs to solve the issue, whether it be racism or whether it be you know, uh, immigration. How can we find a way to work together to address the issue? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we can still have disagreement about some key issues or areas, but there may be one common ground that we can find. All right, you get your last question up there? Oh, my God, no. <laughs> is this the last question? There's like 120 people here. And she chose me. <laughs> okay. All this come by around the campfire stuff is really nice. But when you are faced with a regime that can't understand and recognize basic facts, climate change, the march of human rights, the lower rates of crime by immigrants, uh, the, the, the effects of income distribution, the obvious economic effects. There's, at a certain point, why, what's the virtue, why is the starting point that there should be civil discourse short of violence? I get that we don't like violence because we have rules against that. But why, should, why shouldn't one side rise up and put down this ugly insurrection that has occurred as a blot in history, and why be civil about it? I don't get that. <laughs> 
You had to give him the mic. No, I think it's a good... I, I do want to say one thing about this, too, because it's really one of the reasons that I, I got us all here. And he and I can deal with this later. He's just in my life, and he's, he's in my house on Christmas Eve, for real. So we'll just be... Thanksgiving, but though? one of the things that concerns me is, and there was a really interesting study done by Michigan State University about political polarization and how at the level of our political structure in Washington, it's getting worse all the time. And they sort of studied the way that the, it functions and, and how things are voted on. And one of the conclusions that they came to is that you wind up with a system in Washington that's worse than what America, the rest of America, is like. That in fact, in the rest of America, we do agree that most people should have access to health care. I mean, I could tick through four or five things, but that this system that we have now in Washington is set up to create slim majorities who temporarily attain power, try to do something, are replaced two to four years later by other slim majorities that try to undo what's been done. The ACA is a great example, right? You, because, in fact, of the way the system is set up right now, you got a health care reform that maybe isn't even really as comprehensive as a lot of us would like it to be. You know, But the minute the Republicans got control, they started trying to undo it. And that, ultimately, if we can't get this system to look more at the kinds of commonalities that this panel has been so good at laying out. We're, nobody's going to get what they want. You know, we're just going to have those kinds of cycles uh, of competing slim majorities. We're going to have to stop here, although I'm going to end. I'm going to take a risk here. I, I began with a Buddhist story. I'm going to end with a rabbinical story. So there are are two rabbis who are in their 90s, and they're sitting on a bench out in the morning sun. And one of them says, Oi. And the other one says, Oi. And then the first one goes, Oi. And the other one goes, Oi. And the first one goes, I thought we agreed not to talk about politics. <laughs> um, you're a little nervous about where that was going, right? Yeah, that's good. I'm glad you were nervous. So, you know, when I pull these panels together, I, got, I didn't know these people. I just found out about them, and I don't know if there's some divine hand. I feel so incredibly lucky to get the three people that I got here. You know, they are such a great match for one another, and they have brought uh, so many interesting ideas into this forum. So I want you to give them a big round of applause. I'm so lucky. And thank you very much. Thanks for coming out. Thank you, Event Resources. Rock, rock, I'm coming out.